This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Guys, it's great to be back up in the pulpit. Last week, Matt was here. I think he did pretty good, yeah? Amen. Yeah, it was great. That was his first sermon ever. So, well done, brother. It was great to have you come and preach. We're looking forward to the Lord continuing his work as you sharpen those skills and use them for God's glory. Um, For those of you that are interested in soccer, I just wanted to give you a little uh, update. If you've been following the World Cup, Argentina is leading 2-0 right now. So, if you're interested in that, Lionel Messi has indeed scored. We're all in trouble, friends. <laughs> so uh, for the soccer fans in the room, you're welcome. For those of you that are not soccer fans, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, let's, let's pray before we go into God's word together this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the words of life. I pray now, God, that you would help us as we turn our hearts and our minds to hearing what it is that you have spoken, not only just in what we've, we've read now, but through this sermon, God, would your words speak in a way that they challenge us and motivate us and help us so that we may trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, guys, I want to bring you back to 2013. 2013 was a really great year for yours truly. Anybody have any idea why that might be a good year for me, 2013? There were a few things that happened in my life in 2013. And Caleb knows. That was when I proposed to Rachel. It was my proposal to Rachel. And I thought that I might share this story with you today. I have gotten her permission to share this story. She told me that I owed her a dollar, though. So um, I'm I'm weary now to share stories of my family because it's going to start costing me money, right? Um, But... 2013 was a wonderful year. It was the year I graduated from Cedarville University in Ohio. It was the year that Rachel and I got engaged. And uh, the story of our engagement was pretty interesting. If any of you have been around the Christian university setting, there is a motto that is in Christian campuses. Does anybody know what it is? Ring by spring, brother. That's right. The ring by spring. If you start a relationship, you are expected to like marry as soon as possible. Well, if you know Rachel and I, we met as 16-year-olds at Baptist Fellowship, and that's where our love story began. So we were not getting married at 16 because both of our parents probably would have killed us. (laughs) So thank you guys for preserving our lives and our our good faith. Um, So we were 16-year-olds. We met. uh, I fell in love with Rachel at first sight. She thought that I was weird because I was actually interested and like sent her a message. And guys, let me tell you, the beginning of our relationship was rocky. The first thing she ever ate in front of me was a cheese and mayonnaise sandwich, okay? And I was just like, there's something with this girl. <laughs> she, she is beautiful. She is easy to talk to, but the cheese and mayonnaise sandwich, I, I don't know. If I, we're going to have to get over this. <laughs> but lo and behold, the Lord continued to grow our love for one another. As we went to college, our relationship continued to, to grow, and our, our roots of love continued to deepen. And in 2012, I started thinking about how I was going to propose for her because I had my mindset on marrying this woman. I couldn't envision life without her. So I started to take her to the store. We would go around the mall, especially around Christmas time, start shopping and things. I'd be like, oh, let's go into this jewelry store. I'd love to see what kind of like rings you like, kind of dropping little hints here and there like, this is coming up. You should, you should see this. And so she showed me what she liked. 
She liked rose gold, which was really, you know, trendy at the time. Um, and she showed me what she wanted. And uh, I just tucked it away in my head. And Rachel had zero expectation that there would be any sort of proposal to come. So I came home for Christmas break in 2012, and I started talking with her, her family about the idea of proposing. Uh, they were all excited. It was kind of one of those finally moments because we had been dating for four years, going on uh, into our fifth year at this point. And uh, I started talking with her Aunt Becky, who had a family diamond that was set aside uh, that she gave to me so that I could go and get this ring for her. She had no idea that I was actually like spending every single cent of what I had as a college student to, to go and get a ring for her so that I could propose. So I started making some, some plans for her, and the plans included uh, step number one, which was make sure you talk to dad. <laughs> okay, so I talked to my dad, but I especially talked to Dave. And uh, for those of you that, that know Willimannock, that you know where Willimannock Waste is right there in town? Right across the street, there's a Dunkin' Donuts. That is Dave's sanctuary. Okay? <laughs> they know him by name. <laughs> That is like his emergency stop. <laughs> if you ever need to run there, he, he just goes right in there and he spent a lot of time. So I told him I wanted to get together with him and uh, I, I just wanted it to just be the two of us. And we sat down and I said, Dave, here's my plan. Here's what I'd like to do. Could I have your permission to marry Rachel? And he said, yep. And we got up, we started walking out. He turned around, cried, gave me a big hug. I cried, and we went on our way. <laughs> it was glorious. It was one of the sweetest moments that I have with Dave that I can remember. Um, so my plan for proposing to Rachel was, it was spring break, 2013, March. We started dating in March of 2009, and I knew that I wanted to uh, propose to her around our anniversary. So we were home. It was March 8th, uh, a Friday, and uh, we were going to go out for our anniversary dinner. On our first dating anniversary, Rachel gave me this really sweet gift, which was like a picture book of all the things that we had done together in that first year. So I decided that in light of what she had done for me on our first anniversary, I would repeat the process and create a picture book of all the things that we had gone through together within our four years of dating at this point. And so we had some really good highlights and great memories. And in the, the very last page, I had Dave write a hand letter to her in which he just talked about his love for her and um, how proud of her she, he was. And as he wrote this letter, he, she would flip the page, and in the middle of the book, there was a square that was cut out, and uh, I put the ring in there attached to a ribbon. So we decided we were going to take some pictures on her front porch, which is now our front porch of our house, uh, to celebrate our anniversary. I d- dressed it all up with twinkly lights, because twinkly lights are romantic, right? And... We, we get out there, she starts reading it. Right beforehand, she was so cranky, and I tried to make her laugh, and she called me a jerk, right? So I was like, this isn't, this isn't going as I had planned. And in fact, Sue said to me at that time, she said, you really don't have to do this, you know? <laughs> so Rachel's coming out of the bathroom. I'm kind of like sweating. The plan seems like it's coming together, but it's not at all the romantic story that I had up to this point. Uh, in fact, I didn't even have the book in my hands yet. We wanted to make sure Rachel didn't see it. So she comes out of the bathroom. She starts walking up the door, and Dave tosses the book to me, and I catch it behind my back and just hold it there like nothing happened. <laughs> we go out to the front porch. We start taking some pictures, this and that. And I said, oh, babe, I got you a gift. I made you something. I want you to see this. And so she starts flipping through, 
And she's like, oh, this is so sweet. You know, I did something like this for you. How original. That's cute, right? She gets to the last page. She starts reading the letter from her dad, and she's like, wait, there's got to be something that's different here. And then she flipped the page, and I got on my knee, and I proposed to her. It was awesome. Not at all how I, I envisioned the first part of it, but when it came together, even though it seemed complicated, it was a beautiful story. As we arrived to Ruth chapter 3 this morning, we're seeing something like that, where God has been working together within the situation of Ruth and Naomi's lives. And he's shown through their affliction that he is there with them. And we have learned that through the affliction of life, we need to be there for one another. Last week, Matt showed us how God arranges all of the events of our lives in such a way that he works them together for our good. And this week, we're going to see in Ruth 3 that even when we make plans, God works within them and above them for our good and for his glory. And so my argument for today is that God works within and above our circumstances, and even when things are complicated, we need to trust him. We need to trust him. So I'll say that for you again. God works within and above our circumstances, and even when things are complicated, we need to trust God. There are three sections that I see here in Ruth chapter 3. The first is where Ruth and Naomi set their plan. The second is where the plan starts to come to life, but it gets complicated. And in the third, we see a period of waiting. I've got three points for you this morning. First is set your plans. Set your plans. Second is things may not work like you think they will. Things may not work like you think they will. And the final point is we must trust that the Lord will provide. We must trust that the Lord will provide. So first, let's look at this idea of setting our plans. In Ruth 3, 1, it says, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you should be taken care of? Now, at this point, we have to remember, back in chapter 1, as they were facing the affliction, Naomi made this giant declaration to her that she would not leave her side. In Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, Wherever you will go, I will go. Wherever you will live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. They've made these declarations to one another to be by each other's side through everything. And at that point, Naomi was lacking rest. She had become bitter in life because of the circumstances that she was facing. And as she entered into the territory of Bethlehem to then be with God's people again, she saw God providing for the needs of his people. And she was rejoicing in the sense that there were provisions, but she was also facing the reality of her circumstances. She was lacking rest. And so in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth makes a plan to go into Boaz's field to work the field so that they can have the material needs that they Uh, they're in need of for that moment so they can actually eat food and survive. And the Lord provides in plenty for them. But right here, as we start out in Ruth chapter 3, Ruth is now becoming the benefactor of Naomi's work for her. She says, Naomi, you've served me. You have been there for me. You have provided for my needs. Should I not find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? 
Remember in Ruth 1, as they were traveling toward Bethlehem, Naomi had said to Ruth that she shouldn't go with her because she couldn't provide her with food. She couldn't provide her with a husband. She couldn't provide her with children. She couldn't provide her with a legacy. She could not give her rest. And now in Ruth 3, Naomi's life is changing and Ruth's life is changing in such a way that they're looking to find the rest that comes only from God. So she devises a plan. She says in verse 2, Isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice a place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. Now, this, this plan to meet the needs of their rest is a risky plan. It is not something that could, it, it has lots of caveats, lots of things that could go wrong in it. It's not a simple, straightforward plan. It's a complicated plan. And the first step in which we see is this idea that Ruth has been working with Boaz's female servants. They've been collecting barley through the harvest. And so there's this process in the, the yielding of the field in which they then take the supplies from the field and they bring it to this place called the threshing floor. And Matt explained very good for us last week how um, the idea of the wheat and the chaff actually comes from the process that we see here in Ruth chapter 3. So when he says he's winnowing barley, what he's actually doing is taking like a pitchfork, he's taking the barley like leaves, he's picking them up and he's shaking them in the evening breeze so that the leaves uh, are removed from the berries. And then that would take, they would take that and they would turn that into food for their resources. So this is a process that the farmers would go through and this is something that they would do on their own. Okay, so they go down to this specific place called the threshing floor. The threshing floor is a really interesting place within the Old Testament. If you have any reminders of Genesis and Exodus, now even into Ruth, and what we're going to see in First and Second Samuel, the threshing floor is a very important place. In Genesis 22, when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, he does it at this place that's called Mount Moriah. Right? Mount Moriah would become the place where the threshing floor of Mount Moriah would be, where King David would be anointed king, and the place where God would reveal to David that the temple would be built. It's a place where God would bring his people to offer up sacrifices so that they could worship him. And so they come to this threshing floor, and the plan is, as he's doing these things, Naomi tells Ruth, she's got to go get washed up. Right? And so basically the idea is here, Ruth, go clean yourself up, put on some good perfume, wear your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. Now, this was extremely risky. Here you have a single woman who's going to a place where only men work, and they do so in the evening, in the dark hours when no one else is around. And after she, she says, after he's gone and done this work, first of all, hide yourself from him. Don't let him know that you're there. And when he goes to lay down, you are to go and uncover his feet. Now, some commentators, when they see this, they actually suggest that this is a provocative scene. And this is not a seductive scene, friends. This is actually what you and I often experience within our own lives. When the the blankies get off your toes in the middle of the night, it's not good, right? Now, I and many of you that are married 
have a specific problem to that, right? The problem is our wives, right? Because they steal the blankets from us, okay? Yes, they do. Don't deny it, ladies. You steal the blankets, don't you, right? It's, it's the truth. It's a reality, right? Now, I have double trouble because often Maeve will cry in the middle of the night and ask one of us to go sleep in the bed with her. And so I'll go and I'll lay down there. But you know what Maeve does? She steals the blankets, okay? So what she's telling Ruth to do with Boaz here is as he's laying down, she's not saying go and expose him. She's going and saying, lift up the blanket, uncover his feet, so that as the wind comes by, it startles him and he wakes up. It was a very intricate plan. And after he's done this, wait for him to tell you what to do. So at this point, there's no plan outside of go to this place wearing your best stuff, looking great, smelling great, and uncover this man's feet who has been providing for you. But Ruth is reading Naomi's intent. She's seeing that Boaz is the instrument that God will use to provide the rest that she needs. So in verse 5, Ruth responds to this proposal by saying, I'll do everything you say. When we set our plans, God works within our circumstances. Now, there's this theological concept within the Bible You may have heard of it. It's called God's sovereignty. (laughs) But when we say that God is sovereign, we say that he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and that he works everything together for his good, for his glory, that nothing escapes his grasp. Now, there are some people who would suggest that if if God is sovereign, that he knows everything and orchestrates everything, he works everything together, then our freedom is meaningless. Now, that is what we would call a hyper view of sovereignty. But in the Bible, we see this great tension between sovereignty and human free agency. Ruth set these plans up with Naomi. Naomi made this plan so that she could see the provision of God. Now, if we read it just at the surface level and thought, okay, this woman does not have any faith, now we, we would be looking at it with the lens of saying, here's just a woman scheming away to get with a guy so that all of her things are taken care of. That is not her desire here. Naomi wants to see good happen for Ruth. Good happen for herself. Good happen for Boaz. Good happen for the Lord. She recognizes that only the Lord can provide good circumstances for their lives. God's sovereignty is always at work, friends. God is sovereign. We believe that he is in control. But God's sovereignty does not make us inactive or incapable participants. I often use this illustration. God's sovereignty is on display in what we do when we walk across the street. Okay, so guys, right here, Route 85, Route 66, there's a crosswalk. Did you you ever notice that? Right? It's right there in the center of town. You know what's awesome about crosswalks? They've got those little buttons that you push where there's the the thing on the other side where it flashes that little dude that's like white and supposed to be the walking signal, right? Now, when we come to cross the street, when we hit the button that tells us to walk across the street, we can walk across the street, but if we don't look both ways and we get hit by a car, we are in trouble, right? But presumably dead because the speed limit right here is like 35 going into 45. That doesn't bode well for the human body in a two-ton truck, right? But if we don't look before we cross the street, we can say, well, we trusted in the sign. The sign told us that it was time to walk, 
But we still have a responsibility that's within us. Now, did God arrange for that car to hit us? We would say, yeah. They, they both work in and in together. We, God is sovereign, and we have responsibility. And that responsibility is carried out in a way in which we can either glorify God or not glorify him. And he works all things together within our free agency for his purposes and for his glory. So is it all about God's sovereignty? Possibly. Is it all about our humanity and our freedom? I say, well, every time we look in the Bible and people are left in and of themselves to themselves, how does that end? It usually doesn't end well. So if God is God, we're going to allow him to be God, we must rest in the idea that he is sovereign. But his sovereignty does not make us robots. And his sovereignty does not make us incapable to participate in things for his glory. So these plans that Ruth and Naomi set were indeed God-glorifying plans that he would use and work within for their good and for his glory. So brothers and sisters, set your plans. It is okay to have goals in your life. It is okay to set up ways that you want to pursue things for God's glory. But remember, it's about God's glory. It's not about your glory. Set everything within the, the, the lens of sifting it through. Does this glorify God or does it not glorify God? And rest in him. The second thing we learn is that as we set our plans, things may not work according to the plan. So let's look at verse 7. It tells us that after Ruth had said she would do everything that she would do, that Naomi had said, when she actually went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law charged her to do, it says, after Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So she carried out the plan. Verse 8, at midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. Okay, now we look at this and we're like, well, we know this was the plan. This, this was like expected. To the reader, it's expected. To Bo- but to Boaz, he's not expecting this. He's just worked a long, hard day in the barn threshing the barley. And all of a sudden, he wakes up in the middle of the night to cold feet and a lady down at his feet. He's been eating. He's been drinking. He's been enjoying himself. And he's probably thinking, oh, no, what have I done? But Ruth responds, he goes and he says, who are you? And notice Ruth's response in verse 9. She said, I am Ruth, your servant. That's good. She has been working in the field. But the second half of her response is what's so essential to this passage. She replied, take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. Take me under your wing, you are a family redeemer. Now, Naomi has made her aware of the family ties that exist between her and Boaz right here. But notice that she doesn't just say, you're a family redeemer. She says, take me under your wing. Flip over to Ruth chapter 2. Look at verse 12. As Ruth was working within the fields, Boaz saw her. He spoke of everything that she had done for her mother-in-law and how it had been reported by the people And he says this to her in verse 12, May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. 
in Ruth's response to Boaz's question of identification in Ruth chapter 3, Ruth responds with, take me under your wing. What she's saying here is, Boaz, what you have said that God would bless me with, please be the instrument of his blessing in my life. Now, she is not getting on a knee and proposing to Boaz. She is not saying, marry me. She's suggesting it, but she's not asking him to marry her. Okay? She's saying, here I am, here you are. This is your position that could be of benefit. You have said that the Lord will provide for me. Will he provide for me? And his response comes in verse 10. He says, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. Now, Boaz is significantly older than Ruth, and so he identifies her youth, but he doesn't do so in a way that's negative. He does so in a way that highlights the positivity of the situation. He continues on by saying, you have shown more kindness than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz is responding with favor and honor to Ruth. He's recognizing that the Lord is blessing her, that she has done considerably good work toward Ruth, and particularly considerably good work on his behalf. And he reassures her in his response with confidence, saying that he will indeed do as she desires. Now, she could have gone, as the text says, to younger men. She could have gone to richer men or poorer men. She could have gone to somebody else, but she has gone to Boaz, and Boaz responds with blessing to Ruth. But this is all looking like the plan's going to work just beautifully, isn't it, at this point? It's like, yes, this is exactly what Naomi wanted to see. Great. We could end the chapter right here and be like, that's good, right? That's not how the chapter ends, though. Because there's a plot twist, a plot twist right there in verse 12. He goes on to say, yes, it's true that I'm a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I. Stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until the morning. At this point, we want to like shout for joy and celebration, but we're also like, oh no, what's going to happen? Because, first of all, Ruth and Naomi in chapter 1 thought that they were destitute and that the Lord had nothing for them and that they were just going to end in their existence right then and there. And in chapter 2, we start to see the provision of the field and the work that's there, and we celebrate that. But here now in chapter 3, we're seeing the actual idea of a family redeemer, the, the Leverite marriage, come into act where the, the person that belongs to the family could redeem the family name by taking on the spouse that was left behind. And now that is even, yes, established, but the Redeemer himself is unidentified. It's this person like Ruth and Naomi think it's Boaz, but Boaz says, no, there's someone even closer than I am. And then everything hinges upon this man's willingness. So the, the plan is up in the air right now. And he goes on to tell her, stay here tonight, and if he wants to redeem you, that's good. If he doesn't, then Boaz will do everything that the Lord will allow him to do to make sure that she is cared for. So while there's complication, there's still hope. It's a complicated hope for Ruth. 
a hope in which she thinks that she knows what's going to happen here, but she's not certain that it's all going to work together. So what do we do with something like this within our own lives? Well, friends, I want to suggest for you first that complications don't necessarily equal conclusions. Complications don't necessarily equal conclusions. Now, you and I have been in situations where we've had a plan to set something in place, but maybe something's come and it's delayed it, or maybe something's come and threatened it, and we're tempted often to say, it's all going to dust, it's never going to work again. Because what we do is we trust in ourselves for our plans. Right? I've established the, the path to my plans. I know if I do this, this, and this, then it's all going to work out great. But the reality is, is that we're not that kind of sovereign. Only God's that kind of sovereign. Where When he says something, it comes to light. And when he says something comes to light, he does it in his time. But we must not lose heart, friends. That when complications come along, it doesn't necessarily equal conclusions. Keep your faith in God's provision. Don't keep your faith in your ability. Keep your faith in God's ability to do what is good for you. I think as men, we also learn some ways to lead here. Lead by example. And particularly, we should lead with gentle kindness. Notice that, that Ruth, when she makes this proposal to Boaz, think of the position Boaz is in. Does he have to do this? No. Right? He could say, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this, Ruth. Back up. Right? She's not manipulating him into a position where he has to respond, but he is responding out of favor and kindness toward her and toward the Lord. Because Ruth's proposition wasn't just based upon her. Her goodness, she said, you've said that the Lord will bless me, the Lord will provide. Do you, in tandem, believe that the Lord will do this? Will you act with me in trusting his provision? And so Boaz doesn't shirk away from the responsibility that's set before him. This proposal, this suggestion of marrying Ruth, taking on the family redemption here, is a giant proposal with great significance. He's not only caring for Ruth, he's also caring for Naomi. And Boaz looks at that and he doesn't run. Guys, when it looks like it's going to be hard for our wives, don't you dare run. Don't you just run at the situation when it gets tough. Stay with her. Fight for her. Be by her side. Care for her. I I love how Paul puts it to us in Ephesians 5, where he tells us that our great call as husbands is to wash our wives with the water of the word, to meet her needs, to die to ourselves in such a way that Christ has died for the church. Brothers, you have a responsibility to your wives. Don't shirk away from your responsibility. Embrace it. And don't just embrace it in a way where you're just dealing with the situation because you know that she's upset and you, know, you just want to calm things down and maybe it will all be okay. Embrace it with the emotion that she's also going through. When your wife weeps, weep with her. When your wife is worried, give her assurance, but also be there in her worry. When your wife is joyful, celebrate with joy what she is going through. Brothers, enter into the circumstances of your spouse, your, your wife, 
and do so for the glory of God and for her good. Lead her well. Lead her with gentle kindness. Notice, too, that, let me just put this into play for you. They're alone in a barn in the middle of the night. And Boaz doesn't exploit Ruth's weaknesses. Brothers, you want to lead your wife with gentle kindness? Don't exploit her sexually. Don't take advantage of opportunities. Brothers, maybe you're thinking, oh, well, maybe the opportunity is there for me and my wife. Uh, One way that we exploit our wives is through the use of pornography. We exploit them sexually. Pornography is not just something that satisfies you for a moment. It's something that destroys your marriage, destroys your sexual intimacy. There's literally things going on in your brain that are filling the endorphins that then when you're with your wife, allow you to not be present there. Brothers, don't exploit your wife sexually. Be gentle and kind and caring. Don't look at them as a means to an end for your sexual pleasure. Look at them as a gift from God. Cherish them. And I think generally we also learn together that character matters. When Ruth is presented to Boaz, Boaz doesn't just look at her and go, she is smoking. (laughs) That is not his response. He's not like, praise God, I've got a great-looking wife, right? A great-looking prospect of a wife here. What he's attracted to is her faith and her character. In her declaration to Boaz, take me under your wing, she's saying, I believe the Lord's going to provide. That's attractive, right? Brothers, do you find your, your wife's faith in God attractive? That's an attractive characteristic of, of Ruth. But not only that, he goes on to say, you could have done all of these other things, but you've shown even more kindness to me and proposing this idea, suggesting this idea to me, and you have shown yourself to be a woman of noble character. Somebody who indeed is willing to say, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Whoever your people are will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's the character that attracts Boaz to Ruth. And so friends, character matters. Character is often described not only as what you do in public, but what you do in private when no one else is looking. So brothers, sisters, character matters. When we think about our spouses, when we think about those that could be potential suitors even, don't just look to the physical attraction. Look to the character of the individual. In light of all these things, setting our plans, knowing that things could get complicated. Ultimately, what we land on here is what we see at the end of the passage, that we must wait on the Lord to provide. We must wait on the Lord to provide. Verse 16, she went with her, went to, after all this has happened, she's gone to the threshing floor. She's been sent away with a shawl of things. By the way, the, the sending away of the shawl with the, the actual barley in her bag that is helpful because now it doesn't look like she was just a woman that was going to the, the, the threshing floor, goodness, um, with no goal in task. She's been sent away with barley. So it makes it look like she wasn't doing something that was out of place. Okay? She was going to the threshing floor. She received barley. That's a normal exchange. In verse 16, it says she goes to Naomi, and Naomi goes, so what happened? 
right? It's like going on the date, you come back, you talk with your, your siblings or your, your parents, they go, so how'd it go, right? And Ruth responds with everything that, that Boaz had done for her. And she said, he gave me six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Now, we may just be looking at the idea of the barley being an act of providing for their food needs, but this is not just an act of provision for their food needs. Remember what Boaz said to Ruth. There's a redeemer that's closer than I, and if he doesn't redeem you, I'll do everything in the Lord's plans to make sure that you're redeemed. And this sign of sending back barley with Naomi is not only a declaration to Ruth that he's going to follow through with the plan, it's a declaration to Naomi that he's going to be a faithful man to his word. And Naomi responds with, My daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this, this very day. She goes back. She tells him everything that's going to happen. And we're just kind of left on the edge of the cliff here. Like, is this all going to play out? Praise God, we'll talk about that some more next week and see how that came to life. But I think we need to look to Boaz and his example and see that Boaz points us to the God who will not relent. It's not just that Boaz is going to be the redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. It's also pointing us to a topology of what Jesus does for us. Jesus comes to those that are needy. He comes to those that are destitute and looks like nothing is going to work on their behalf. He provides for their needs, but not just the need of what we have day to day. He provides for the ultimate need of our salvation. He enters into our debt. He redeems us. He pays what is owed on our behalf before God. And he makes it so that no longer will we be known as those who are destitute, but those who are redeemed and purchased and now in the family of the king of kings. Boaz points us to the God who will not relent in saving his people. Jesus said that he would seek and save that which was lost. He's going to run after him, people. Brothers and sisters, Jesus runs after you. Your redemption is not by chance. Your redemption is not inactive or or passive. It's an active work of God in which he runs after you. Think of the parable of the sheep in the Gospels. Jesus is the one who runs when he's got 100 sheep and 99 are with him. When the one strays off, what does Jesus do? He runs after them. That's the kind of God we have, one who won't relent the one who will redeem us, the one who will do everything that's possible to make sure that those that are his are indeed his. He marks them out. He chooses them. He purchases them. And he makes us right. Jesus was so set on this purpose. It tells us in Hebrews 12 that he set his eyes on the cross, running the race, despising the shame so that we could be made right with God. We have a God that won't relent. So in our efforts, in our lives, when we are running, when we're setting our plans, when it doesn't look like everything's working as things should, the question comes down to, do we trust him? Guys, hear that again. Do we trust him? Not do we trust that it's going to work out, right? Because what you think it's going to work out and what I think are going to work out 
are maybe very different things than what God thinks is going to mean for us to see it work out. Do we trust him? Do we have faith in him? In the person of God? We have to set our hope on him alone. Knowing that our contentment comes not from the things that he gives us, but from himself. Our contentment does not come from not only the things that he provides for us, but the people that he provides for us. Our contentment is in him, not in the other people. So what do we do? We wait. We wait on the Lord. What does that mean? Do we just sit by and twiddle our thumbs and hope that nothing happens? Did Ruth and Naomi do that? Ruth 3 screams, no. <laughs> Ruth 3 says they got to work in faith. So what, do we, what does it look like for us to wait on the Lord? I want to suggest two things. Waiting on the Lord looks like first remembering his word. Remembering his word. It starts with remembering the word. What has God said in his word? Do we remember it? And when we're forgetful about it, do we go back and look at it again? Brothers and sisters, waiting on the Lord means remembering his word. But secondly, it means trusting in his word. So it's not just calling it to mind and saying, I know this, but it's actually trusting and living that out. Things may not work according to our plans, but the Lord God has a plan to redeem. Brothers and sisters, nothing will stop the plans of the Lord. Do we trust him? We may be set with afflictions. We may be seeing that the Lord is arranging the circumstances of our lives, but even within those circumstances, when things are complicated, do we still have hope and the only one that can provide for us? Do we have hope in him? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord to meet your needs. Pray with me.